I'd ask you to please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. Uh, we're we're going to be, we're in uh, just about finished Acts. Um, this, this morning we're going to be finishing Acts 27 and then the first 10 verses of, of chapter 28. Um, but uh, we last week we did chapter 27 verses 1 to 27, but so we get the full context of, uh, of what's happening. I'm going to, I'm going to start, I'm going to start with, uh, with verse 1 of chapter 27. And if it's a relatively long passage, if you're not able to stand, please, uh, please feel free to, to, to sit down. Acts 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship from Admiridium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us aboard. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And the wind did not allow us to go further. So as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which this was a city of Lassia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. When the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet I now urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very, this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I, wor and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding. 
and found 20 fathoms. A little farther, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that it might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, I had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It It will give you strength, for not a hair of your head will perish from any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out the plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard and to make for the land, and the rest on planks and a piece of the ship. So it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness for the kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered the bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When the native people saw the creature was hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery, so Paul And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. When this had taken place, the rest of the people of the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put aboard whatever we needed. This is the word of our Lord. May he rise eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look at this passage, as we see the way that, that you delivered the Apostle Paul through the storm to his intended destination, the place to which you were sending him. Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to see your character. Lord, not as though we could take this as a personal prop, promise that you're going to deliver us through some specific storm, but Lord, that you'll deliver us through all the storms of our lives that we can trust that you will bring us safely home to our final destination. Lord, we praise you that you are the faithful God. I pray that you would help us to see your faithfulness, help us to see 
the God that Paul proclaimed, as Paul bore witness of Jesus Christ, may you help us to see, to witness the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of your Holy Spirit and the proclamation of your word. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As I mentioned a few moments ago, last time we left the Apostle Paul and his shipmates tossed around on the Mediterranean Sea. 276 people traveling on a wheat ship bound for Rome only to encounter a powerful tempest, a nor'easter that drove the ship violently up and down the crashing waves. And Paul, remember, had warned his centurion guard of the danger of traveling in the autumn when, a time when few sailors ventured to dare out on the open ocean, at least the wise ones. And when the storm hit, they had no choice but to give way before the wind. But they worked hard. They, they managed to secure the ship's lifeboat and to undergird the hull of the ship with ropes to strengthen it. But as they were driven along helpless, they grew increasingly hopeless. At first concerned that they would run aground on sandbars that were north of the African coast, so they lowered the gear. That, that meaning very likely the, the anchors. Then they began to jettison cargo. Even the ship's tackle went overboard. They were becoming desperate. And seeing neither sun nor stars, they had no idea where they were, and they abandoned all hope of being saved. But then a beam of light shone through their dark peril. The Apostle Paul, with the storm still raging around him, stood up and testified that an angel of the God to whom he belonged, the God that he worshipped, this, this angel appeared to Paul and told Paul, Do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will be exactly as I have been told. But he continued, we must run aground on some island. And this, remember, was a repeated promise that Paul had received. He had been, it had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would testify to the Lord Jesus Christ in Rome in, in Acts 19. And then later on in Acts, when in Acts 22, when he was before, after his encounter with the, the ruling leaders of the, the Jews, the Lord Jesus Christ had appeared to Paul and said, to, said, Paul, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, you'll also testify about me in Rome. So the Lord Jesus Christ had testified to Paul that he would arrive safely in Rome. The Holy Spirit had testified that Paul would arrive safely in Rome. And now the angel of God told Paul that he would arrive safely in Rome, all for God's appointed purpose. This was really, this is really Paul's fourth missionary journey. We, we talk a lot about Paul's first three missionary journeys, but this is every bit as much a missionary journey as the first three. As he is sent by God, an apostle sent by God for ministry. As we see, God has promised and God will deliver on his promise that Paul will arrive safely at the intended destination, ultimately God's intended destination. And, and as a um, and as a blessing to the people that, that Paul was with, they also would arrive safely at their intended destination. But we need to recognize that there were only three men on that ship who knew 
and trusted the God who would relay that message. The rest of those on board would be, del- would be delivered because of God's guarantee that Paul would reach Rome. The storm was not over, but those words were an encouragement to many. And for some, they were possibly the first words and the first step towards their own repentance from sin and their own faith in Jesus Christ. So as we continue this passage, we have four, four final sections in this story, four final scenes. In verses 27 to 32, land ho. And then in 33 to 38, the meal. And then verses 39 to 44, the shipwreck. And then verses 1 to 10 of chapter 28, the island. After Paul's repeated trials and the repeated judgment from those who were presuming to be judges upon him, that he had done nothing wrong. Remember the tribune Lysias had said it, the governor Festus had said it, and King Agrippa had said it. They all had said that Paul had done nothing wrong. God's deliverance of Paul and those with him through this storm was taken as a further testimony of the fact that Paul was innocent of the charges that had been brought against him by the Jews. And this is how it would have been interpreted to a Gentile audience. Remember, Theophilus is the the one to whom this this book is addressed. This is Luke chapter 2. The Acts of the Apostles written to Theophilus, a, a Gentile, that he might have confidence that what he had been taught was indeed true. We are unlikely to ever experience a storm at sea anywhere close to what Paul experienced. But nonetheless, many of us have, and most of us will, experience storms that are equally perilous, either perilous to our own lives or to the lives of our loved ones. And God does not promise that he would deliver you out of all the storms of your life, but he does promise that he will deliver you through the storms of life to his intended destination. So let's watch as the Lord delivers Paul through the storm to his intended destination. So again, verses 27 to 32, land ho. After Paul stood up to encourage those on board the ship, again, relaying the promise that all on board would survive the storm, the storm did not stop right away. You know, we'd almost expect there to be an immediate miraculous calm in the storm, but there was no such calm. The storm continued for several more days. Now, those on board had not heeded Paul's warning not to continue their journey until spring. Now, again, that was his opinion, I believe, based on his wisdom of, of many years at sea. But this time, it was a promise of God. And Paul told them to listen to to him this time. But some of them, as we see in a second, did not listen. These men did not have faith. But Paul did. Again, very likely, he and his fellow missionaries, Luke and Aristarchus, were the only believers on board. And Paul believed, and presumably Luke and Aristarchus as well, believed that it would be exactly as Paul had been told. But this is not just about Paul's faith. It's not Paul's faith primarily that is on display here. It is God's faithfulness that is on display here. It was now the 14th night of the storm. 
Luke tells us that they were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. On modern maps, the, the Adriatic Sea is actually the, the nor- on the northern part of the Mediterranean between the, the peninsula of Italy and, and the, the coast of what is now Croatia. But in Paul's day, the Adriatic Sea was continued to ex- considered to extend all the way down to, to Greece and it included Crete and Malta, the, the region that they're in right now. And about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. And so, so they could have maybe heard the breakers breaking on the, on the shore or, or felt the change in the movements of the ship as the, the water began to grow more shallow and the, the waves would have changed as the water became shallow beneath them. But whatever danger they experienced before, this was far worse. This was the greatest threat, the threat of capsizing as the waves climbed higher in the shallower water of being dashed in the rocks. Now this might seem counterintuitive, but in a storm aboard a ship, you want to be in deep water. Deep water is actually the safest place for you to be. It's, it's like being on an airplane. Next to being parked on the apron, Eric will tell you this, the safest place for a plane is in the air. It's actually coming in for a landing that is most dangerous. And as rare as airline incidents are, almost half of the fatal airline accidents occur during the relatively short landing sequence on a plane. So they're in danger now that they're coming close to shore. And sensing the danger, the, the sailors took a sounding. They, they would have dropped a line with a, a hollow weight that would have been filled with, uh, with tallow or with, with grease. And if the weight touched bottom, some of the sediment would be picked up on the grease and they could haul it up and say, okay, this is the length of the rope. This is how deep the water is beneath us. So the first sounding showed 20 fathoms. A fathom is six feet. So the the depth at this point was 120 feet. Then the next sounding, it showed 15 fathoms, 90 feet. So the water is getting shallower. The the seabed is, is arching up towards the shoreline. And they feared running aground on the rocks, so they let down four anchors from the stern. And this would have kept the bow of the boat pointed towards shore, which is really the safest way for them to be able to to approach the the shoreline. And we we really see all of this is is really an example of of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. That that God had promised that they're going to be, all of them delivered safely to shore, but they didn't say, okay, let's just sit down and enjoy the ride. They did what they could do. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We we need the scriptures teach both, and so we embrace both. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And notice that part of man's responsibility here is prayer. They prayed for day to come. So again, this prayer and all of their efforts are are examples, again, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And God often uses these things, including prayer, to accomplish his will. This is the mystery of God's providence that he has decreed that he would work in response to our prayers. He's commanded us to pray and he's decreed that we would work and even decreed that we would pray and has, has promised that he would and decreed that he would work in conjunction with our prayers to accomplish his will. And we recognize they're praying for day to come. Well, of course the day is going to come. Right? Day always comes. But they're praying here that they'd be alive to see it. The Lord had promised that they would 
arrives safely and he is faithful. God always keeps his promises. Friends, that is an anchor that will keep you secure. God always keeps his promises. At least Paul and Luke and Aristarchus knew that. They were like the psalmist in Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. They were more confident in the Lord and more hopeful for the Lord than they were even for the coming morning. May we be like that as well. But again, the sailors were not like that. They did not have faith. They hadn't listened to Paul the first time and they did not listen to Paul the second time. So they attempted to abandon ship. And they attempted to abandon all the souls on board as well as they, under the pretense of lowering anchors from the bow, they lowered the ship's boat, the only lifeboat, into the water in an attempt to abandon ship. But Paul said, Paul told the, the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, now I don't believe this is related to the prophecy directly that, that all on board would be, would be spared, but it's another example of, of Paul's wisdom as a seasoned maritime traveler. He knew that in order for the ship to run aground safely, they'd need all hands, especially the skilled hands of the experienced sailors on board. And now the centurion was listening to Paul. So the soldiers cut away the, the boat's ropes and it drifted away. Now verses 33 to 38, the meal. Now as day was about to dawn, while the winds and the waves were continuing to batter the ship, Paul offered those on board another word of encouragement. Paul urged them to eat. It had now been 14 days since they'd eaten. And Paul says here it was, was out of suspense over worry of their peril. So he encouraged them to eat food that, because it would give them the necessary strength to be able to get to shore. Again, I believe this is simply wisdom. And he reminded them again of God's promise, saying not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And, and we know this, this saying, this is a, a common Jewish saying that we see repeatedly in the scriptures. Jesus had made the same promise to the disciples using the same very words in Luke 21, 18. But in that case, Jesus had told the disciples two verses earlier that some of them would be put to death. So how do you reconcile that? That he said that, that not a hair of your head will perish, but two verses earlier saying some of you are going to be put to death. What Jesus is, is emphasizing here, what, what Paul is emphasizing here, is God's sovereignty over the circumstances. It, it is not the enemies of God's people who are sovereign. It is God who is sovereign. And God is sovereign over this enemy too. He's sovereign over the storm. And friends, he is sovereign over all of your enemies, the world and the flesh and the devil. You know, people easily fear death. We've talked about this before, but, but the last enemy that's to be defeated is death. And Jesus Christ is the first fruits from the grave. He has already defeated death. And one day he's going to fully and finally defeat death. 
And until, so until that time, as we live in the time between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his return, we need not fear death. Because he has defeated death for us. Jesus also uses this, this metaphor really in, in Luke 12, 7, where he says, even the very hairs on your head are numbered by God. Now again, this is, this is not a personal promise that your hair is not going to fall out as, as my hairline and, and several of the hairlines around this room can testify. That This is again, speaking of God's sovereignty over all of, of the, the, the circumstances and situations of life. God, is, God knows and, and counts even the hairs of your head. Arguing from the lesser to the greater, if he is sovereign even over, over the follicles of our hair, we could trust him in the big things as well. So here in Acts 27, Paul is reminding them specifically that God in, in his sovereignty over all things will spare their lives. Now, Don't take this as a, as a promise that, that God is going to spare your life. You will leave this life one day if the Lord tarries. But you will receive eternal life in glory with Jesus Christ because he has defeated death for you. And so you can trust that it is God not the storms of life who is sovereign in your life. And God is faithful. And so after saying this, Paul took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he, he broke it and began to eat. Remember, the storm hasn't abated. The wind's still there. The waves are still there. The waves are actually higher now than they were before as they approached shore. But we need to be careful with the words that, that are used here, not to, to take this as a, as, as a saying that this is the Lord's Supper. Okay, they're the same words that are used, but, but this is simply a meal. Because remember, apart from, from Paul and his missionary companions, this ship is full of pagans. So we would not have had the Lord's Supper celebration with a group of pagans on board the ship. This is really, it is though a picture of Psalm 23.5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And the pictures of a, of a sumptuous feast when, when your enemies are surrounded, surrounding you, gnashing your, in their teeth. In this case, the waves are, are metaphorically around these people gnashing their teeth, but, but they are able to eat in peace because of God who is sovereign over the wind and the waves. So this is the testimony of peace that Paul has through Jesus Christ. This is the evangelical peace. Paul, by his words and his actions, was preaching the peace of God. And so the 276 souls on board ate and were encouraged. Have you experienced peace in the storms of life? Have you ever been in a, in a desperate situation not like me and the snake. That was over before I knew it. But have you ever been in a, in a desperate situation and felt strangely calm? Brothers and sisters, that's supernatural. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, working in you so that you produce the peace that passes all understanding, the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. And when you 
experience and, and you walk in peace in those moments, your peace is also evangelical peace. And you'll find that, that quite often, because, because other people are watching, not only your brothers and sisters watching, and, and they're encouraged by your example, but, but others, unbelievers in your life, are watching as well. And, and you'll find that, that quite often in these circumstances, you will have the opportunity that, that you would not have at other times. And they'll say, how can you be at peace with what's going on in your life? And so you can then give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. It's a great opportunity to proclaim the gospel as, by word and by deed. And so this is evangelical peace as you live out the good news of Jesus Christ as one who is at peace with God through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those here who tend to lack peace in the storm, and we need to admit that all of us at times lack peace in the storm, we really need to ask the Lord for forgiveness, for forgiveness for failing to trust Him. And we need to ask Him to strengthen our faith. And to ask him to, to grant us peace. And then we need to preach peace to our own hearts. We, we need to remind ourselves of, of who God is and who God is for us in Jesus Christ. We need to remind ourselves and preach to ourselves that God is truly sovereign and loving and wise. And then you will find yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit, growing in that peace and increasingly exhibiting that peace for the glory of God. So the 276 people sat down and ate as that ship is getting closer and closer and closer to the shore. Then after eating, they, they took the, the wheat and threw it overboard. They were further lightening the ship to make it sit higher on the water so because they, that way they could get closer to shore before running aground. And again, we see that God is sovereign, but they're not just doing nothing. They, they took responsibility and did what they could. Well, now in verses 39 to 44, we see the shipwreck. Now that day had come, they could cl clearly see the, the land, but, but even the, the sailors on board could not recognize it. But they did see a bay, and, and the bay had a, a beach, so they hoped that they could, could run aground on the beach. So they cast off the anchors. They, they let loose the anchors and untied the ropes that held the rudders in place and hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. Now again, these, these are, are accurate nautical practices. This is precisely what, what sailors in that era would have done, and, and sailors aboard sailing boats in a similar situation would do even today. So they made for shore. But then they struck ground on a reef or on a sandbar, and the bow of the ship was stuck, immovable. I remember many years ago being on a dive boat on the Great Barrier Reef, and it was, it was my first night. This is something that I dreamed of, of doing my whole life, and I was finally on the Great Barrier Reef. And I was sleeping peacefully. As if, if you slept on a boat, you know how, how peaceful it is to sleep on a boat. But then I woke to the awful sound of the, the hull of the boat that we were on grating across the reef. It was one of the worst sounds I've ever heard in my life, not just as an annoying sound, like, like a million fingernails on chalkboards, 
But here we were in the middle of the night, in the middle of the, of the ocean, and I thought that, that my dive boat was going to become a dive site. So as, as memory serves, we, we, myself and, and my cabin mate, we grabbed our life jackets and, and headed, headed for the deck. But thankfully, the, the ship w- was not damaged by, by the reef, but I'm sure that the reef was damaged by the ship. And what had happened was that, that our mooring line had broken in, in the middle of the night, and the man who was on watch had fallen asleep. And, and so the ship was just left adrift, and we drifted into a reef. But in this case, as the bow was stuck fast, the stern of the boat was being pulverized by the waves, and the, the, the wooden ship was being smashed to splinters. And so they, they were, they were in, in real trouble now, according to, to the flesh. And under Roman law, Paul and the other prisoners were in even greater trouble now because under Roman law, if a soldier lost a prisoner, then that soldier's life could be lost. He could be killed. So the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so they could not swim away and escape. But thankfully, the Lord had a different plan. The the Lord had given Paul favor with Julius the centurion, and and so Julius wanted to save Paul, so he carried out the Lord's plan and stopped the soldiers from killing Paul and the other prisoners. And so he ordered those who could swim to to jump in first and then to, to make their way for shore. And then for those who couldn't swim, he said, grab planks of wood, grab whatever you can that floats, and, and, and you'll be carried to shore. With that, all were brought safely to land. God, in his faithful providence, had brought all 276 souls safely to shore, just as he had promised. Now, whether any of these souls were safely brought to God's heavenly shore, we won't know until we get there ourselves, but their lives were preserved by the Lord every bit as much as if he had miraculously calmed the storm or miraculously enabled them to walk on the water to shore. The Lord fulfilled his promise, as he always does. Well, then in chapter 28, verses 1 to 7, we see the island. Only now that they were brought safely through, and, and it, notice the words, they were brought safely. It's the Lord who did this. This is the emphasis that Luke is making. It's the, this is the Lord's providence. They are brought safely through by the Lord. Now they find it where they were. They were on the island of Malta, 100 kilometers south of, of Sicily. This is a, a small island. It's only about 30 kilometers long and about, uh, about 13 kilometers wide. It was, again, it's 100 kilometers south of, of Sicily, remarkably close to, to where they were going. It was like finding a needle in a haystack. But the Lord knew all along where he was sending Paul and how he was going to get there. Now, providentially, the island's name, Malta, means refuge, and That's exactly what the island was for Paul and the others on the ship. It was a refuge. Now, some suggest it was actually a different island, Melita. We talked about this in our Bible study on uh, on Tuesday evening. 
Melita, which is off the coast of, of modern Croatia, further north on the Adriatic Sea. And Melita is actually how it's translated in, in the King James. I'll get into this a little more later on, but, but, but the first suggestion of Melita as opposed to Malta was in the 10th century AD by Emperor Constantine VII. And he very likely had political motivations in seeking to promote the Eastern Church up over and against the, the Western Church. But the greatest evidence of this being Malta and not Melita is that, remember, this was a nor'easter. And a nor'easter would not have blown an out-of-control ship directly north. So again, very likely, this was actually, Melita, this was actually Malta, not Melita. Again, more on that in a moment. But, but they, they immediately encountered the natives of Malta. And Luke here uses the term to, to describe them. It's the word that, that we transliterate to the word barbarian. And the reason why they call them barbarians is because the foreign language to the Greek speakers on, on board the boat sounded like a baby's babbling bar, bar, bar. So that's where we get the word barbarian from. That's how their language sounded to Greek speakers. But their behavior was far from barbaric. They showed unusual kindness to the shipwrecked travelers. And Luke again here uses the word from which we get our word philanthropy. Love of fellow man. And so the natives kindled a fire, actually probably several fires on the beach to warm the drenched survivors because it had begun to rain and it was cold. And Paul helped out. Again, he didn't just sit there. He helped out by gathering sticks and seeking to add them to the fire. But Luke then tells us that, that a viper, having been sluggish because of the cold, came out because of the, of the heat and fastened on to Paul's hand. Now, I was curious uh, as to what kind of, of snake it was, so I began to do a little bit of research. And, and as I discovered, that there is, there, is, there is no tangible evidence of vipers on Malta. In fact, the only, uh, this might not be interesting to you, but bear with me, it's interesting to me. The, the only venomous snake on Malta is the Mediterranean cat snake. And if you know anything about snakes, it's not a, a true viper, but it, it's rear fanged. And so they, they very rarely, when a rear fanged snake, when it, when it bites, it usually does not inject venom when it bites defensively. But a viper, like our rattlesnakes, with those long teeth, as soon as a viper strikes, automatically those, the, the venom glands release the, the venom. I'm probably making you squeamish, sorry. But, but they, the venom is automatically released, is, I'm not sorry, is automatically injected into the victim. Now, I mentioned earlier about the, the Malta versus the, the Melita debate. As it turns out, even though Malta, there, again, there's no evidence that, that Malta had, um, had the, these vipers, but Melita was actually infested with vipers, specifically the horned viper. And it was so bad that in the early 20th century, they actually introduced mongooses in order to get the snakes off of, off of the island. And it succeeded. There's none left there. But, but just because there, there is no evidence of vipers on Malta does not mean that they weren't there. I said there's, there's now, if they were to come in, in almost a thousand years to Maliti, you'd say there's no evidence of, of Vipers there either because they've been removed by the human inhabitants. And, and very possibly that's what happened on Malta. 
Doctor, think of of the and again, if it's a if it's if it's a myth, but but the the, the belief is that that Patrick drove all the snakes out of Ireland. There used to be snakes in Ireland, and there's no snakes anymore in Ireland now. Whether it's true or not, I don't think there's any snakes. But whether it's Patrick, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that just because there aren't snakes now, they're venomous. These these vipers now does not mean they were not there at some time. And again and again, you see. That, that when someone has set out to disprove the scriptures, they find themselves actually their position needs to change when actual evidence does, does, um, does come up. But that takes me back to Paul. When the natives saw the snake there, they're hanging on, on Paul's hand, and very likely it must have been somehow caught up in his, his clothing or something that, that made it left, left it stuck there. They, they concluded that this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now, Dike was, was the, the Greek goddess of justice. She was, she was supposedly the, the virgin daughter of, of Zeus. And she was, and her job was to keep watch over injustices on earth and then report them to Zeus, who then would, would mete out final justice. But of course, we would not give credit to a Greek goddess. But, but as I explained last week, in our culture that is, is so influenced by, by the equally heretical prosperity gospel, it's as heretical as the, the Greek pantheon and the Roman pantheon, the prosperity gospel is equally a lie, but we are influenced by it. And, and we too can easily conclude that when someone suffers, that they're being punished by God. But, but the whole point of, of this whole section, from, from the, the trials of Paul to, to the, the surviving of the shipwreck, and now to this, this bite by the viper, is the fact that, that Paul is not guilty. That he is not done. He's not done what the Jews have accused him of. He's not defiled the temple. He's not broken God's law in his worship of Jesus Christ. Jesus had a lot to say about this, didn't he? Remember when people came to him asking about the Tower of Siloam that fell and, and killed a bunch of people? He said, did, these, did these, these people sin? Is that why they died? And Jesus said that, Jesus said that, that it's, it's not because of, of, of particularly their sin. They weren't any sinful than any, more sinful than anybody else. But be, don't you go and, and sin or something worse might happen to you. And similarly, Jesus spoke of the, the man born blind who was, was born blind not because of his sin or because of his parents' sin, but for the glory of God. But we need to be so careful not to be like Job's counselors and, and, and take a half-truth and then conclude and, and act as judge and jury against somebody in their suffering. So they were wrong about their understanding of the snake bite and, and what was happening here. But in one sense, they were right about Paul. Paul was a murderer. Paul was a murderer. The, the blood of Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was on his hands. And, and he testifies that, that it wasn't just Stephen's blood, but that, that he handed many other Christians, men and women, over to death. But Paul had been declared righteous through the death of Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul was, was innocent of all charges. And in fact, he wasn't just innocent. He was credited with, with 100% righteousness. As we think about our own lives, you might think, well, I'm not a murderer. But Jesus would say otherwise. He says, if you have judgment and if you have, have sinful anger in your heart towards your brother or sister, you're committing murder in your heart. So the reality is that, that all of us have broken the sixth commandment. And, and not just once, we, we probably do it mostly almost every day. But like the Apostle Paul, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you also are declared innocent by Almighty God, the omniscient and holy judge. You are declared righteous through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to your account. And so in this immediate context, again, as the repeated verdicts of not guilty against Paul is, and also added to that coming through the storm. And, and now the snake bite is added to it that, that Paul is, is not guilty of what he has been charged with by the Jews. So how does Paul respond? He simply shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And so the people were, were, were standing there watching him and, and not, not morbidly or, or Vindictively, but they were, they were waiting for him. They expected him to, they, they had, clearly the, these people had, had witnessed what this kind of snake can do to somebody. And so they expected him to swell up and, or suddenly fall down dead. Which is exactly what, what can happen to you if, if you were untreated by a viper bite. When they waited for a long time and saw no for, misfortune had come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. I mean, talk about a pendulum swing. And Paul had been, remember, Paul had, had been declared a god earlier in, in Acts chapter 14. Remember, they, they said that Barnabas was Zeus and that he was Hermes because he was the messenger. And, and then when they refused to receive worship from, from the people, remember, the Jews incited them against Paul and, and the people stoned Paul. That's a pendulum swing going the other direction. And Paul experienced it all and everything in between. But here we're reminded there's a story about uh, again it's it's a it's a epigrapha, but it's an epigrapha, it's not it's not actually scriptural, but but Rabbi Hanina Bendosa was storied to have, have grabbed hold of a snake in its hole, and when the snake bit him, he didn't die, but the snake died. And in this case that's that's kind of what happened to, to, to Paul. And to this to Paul's snake. But, but I, I think here what we're seeing instead is the fulfillment of Jesus' word in Luke 10, 18 and 19, that, that about Jesus' followers ha- having the the power or authority to to walk over snakes and, and scorpions and to not be harmed. And then the the long ending of Mark, which is which is a debated text, and I'm, I'm not sure that it's actually um, in the original manuscripts, but in the long ending of Mark. We read that all these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and they will drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them. They, they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. And, and really, very likely, is, is this was 
I, I think, added to the text, it's, it's because of what happened here with Paul. And, and we see that, that, that Paul did all of these things through the power of the Lord. But, but some people, this is, this is kind of uh, common in the, uh, in, maybe not common, but there are places in the southern U.S., where, where there are churches, and the, the people in these churches, maybe heard of this, they're snake handlers, and they, they, they as part of their worship, and again, they, they, they report to be Christians, they, they handle snakes. And uh, I watched a documentary about this. I had a friend who actually pastored in this area and had some people in his church who, who had been not really following that, but had been influenced by some of that thinking. And, and so I, I watched a, a documentary about some of these people, on a, and... Um, and there was a guy there who had been, he said, yeah, we handle snakes. I've been bitten several times by, by venomous snakes. And, and he actually, at one point, he got bitten by the, by the a venomous snake, I think it was a rattlesnake, on his finger. And, uh, and his finger actually fell off. And he actually kept the finger and, and showed it to the reporters. It's really quite gross. But, but anyway, there's people who believe that. And they take these things out of context to make them, them believe what, you know, the Scripture doesn't say. This is, this is not a, a general promise for, for, all, for all of us. This is speaking here of, of apostles and, and some of the things that, that apostles will do. But again, it's not a carte blanche, pro, carte blanche promise that all of us, I'm not going to go and, 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 and grab a rattlesnake um, to, to prove that, that God is um, that, that, that God is with me. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to handle a, a, a rattlesnake rightly. Hopefully, by God's grace, I'm going to handle the word of God rightly to, to show that God is with me. But the point here that, that, that Paul was not was not a divine man. Paul, Paul was not the divine man. There is one divine man, and he is the one who crushed the serpent's head. But now, as we begin to draw this to a close, in, in the area, in the surrounding area, the neighborhood of that place, were, were the lands that belonged to, to a chief man of the island who was named Publius. And, and he, were, were told, received them and entertained them hospitably for three days, and we're probably not talking about the 276 people. He's probably speaking here specifically of, of Paul and Luke and Aristarchus. And this man, Publius, was, was probably a magistrate that had been put in place by the Romans, or he was possibly the, the island's um, chief benefactor. But the father of Publius, we're told, was sick with fever and dysentery. Now, this, this very likely was, was a disease, is what is known as Malta fever, which, which was discovered to be transmitted through drinking goat's milk. There's a microbe in the, in the goat's milk that would, would cause this kind of fever. And when someone encountered this, they would have a fever that would last for months, and then they would, would, would get better, possibly even for a few years, and then it would come back again. It would keep on coming back. It's something you were, you were never rid of. So what does Paul do? Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And notice here that, that Paul prays. He's demonstrating that it's not Paul who heals, it is God. He besought the God who is the healing God. Paul does not perform miracles. It's God who does the miracles. Paul is merely a conduit for those miracles. And so we're told that when this had taken place, that the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. So they, they lined up all of them to be, to be healed to be healed by, by Paul. And I don't think this is hyperbole here. Very likely, I think that it's, he sealed, healed every, God healed through Paul every single person on this island. 
And, and I wonder if, if for Paul, this was like the good old days. Back, back in his older missionary, his earlier missionary days, was, he's, he's ministering and, and seeing the, the power of God working, working in him and, and through him. And, and, and again, although Luke doesn't say it directly, we can safely conclude that, that Paul ministered not just with healing, but he ministered the gospel to them. Again, like those who are on board the ship, we'll, we'll wait till we, till we arrive on the heavenly shore and we'll we'll discover who on the island of, of Malta came to faith directly or indirectly through Paul's ministry. And so this was, this was every bit as much as Paul's first three missionary journeys. This was another missionary journey. Paul was, was not just, just, didn't just happen to be in the storm and just happened to end up on the island of Malta. Paul was sent to the island of Malta to minister to these specific people at this specific time. And as we'll see next week, Lord willing, he's going to be sent from there on to Roman, and, and he'll be sent on to other places as, as well, even though that's not recorded for us in Scripture. But when you think of Paul here being, being used to actually heal the, the, the father of Publius, what, what, what do you think of? Who do you think of? I hope you think of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the parallel in Luke chapter 4, where, where after testifying to, to who he is, and is really his, his first public sermon in, the, in that city in Nazareth, he goes, and he, he, has an, he goes to Peter's mother-in-law and, and heals her of a very debilitating headache. And then she gets up and, and serves them. But this here is not... In that case, with, with Jesus, this was evidence that he is who he says he is. But here, this answer to prayer is evidence that Jesus is who Paul says he is. These miracles and all these miracles were, were meant to be not ends unto themselves, but they were meant to be testimonies that, that demonstrated that the, the man of, of God was sent by God with God's word. And again, living as we do now with the closing of the canon of Scripture, we, we don't rely on on these external miracles. I'm not saying they don't happen, but we now have, as, as I alluded to earlier, we now have the word of God and the, the, the test to see whether a, a man of God is actually faithful to God is whether he's faithful to God's word. May the Lord keep this pulpit always faithful to his word. So the people honored Paul and his companions greatly. Again, I think it's speaking specifically of, of Paul and Luke and Aristarchus. But instead of, of bestowing on them now great divine titles, they offered them honor. They offered them honor. And so when they were getting ready to sail, as we'll see next week on, on a Roman ship that was, was moored there for the winter, the, the people gladly extended the hospitality and gave them everything that they needed for, for the rest of the journey. Friends, God is faithful. He will get Paul safely to his destination. And he will get you safely to yours as well in his perfect timing. And we know that our ultimate destination, our final destination is not Rome, but it is eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we, every bit as much as the Apostle Paul, can rest in God's promises to us that, that God is faithful, that, that in Christ 
he will safely bring us home, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he will use all things, even the storms of life, for our good and for his glory. So the next time that, that you encounter one of the, the serious storms of life, and maybe some here are, are going through a storm at this very moment, remember that God moves, as William Cowper wrote, God, Cooper, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon a storm. Deep in unfathomable minds, he of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, and if I could, could fix this lyric a little bit, faith sees a smiling faith. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain, but God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Brothers and sisters, God is for you in Jesus Christ. He loves you with the very same love that he has for his son. You can have confidence not in your faith, but in his faithfulness that he will bring you home and that whatever storm it is you're facing, even if it means the end of your life here on earth, he will be home to be with him forever. Let's pray together. Our great and sovereign God, we praise you for the example of the Apostle Paul as he followed the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us Heavenly Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit to follow Paul as he followed Christ, help us, Lord, not to look around at our circumstances and fall into hopelessness and despair, but to consider our eternal circumstances and to know that, Lord, one day you will get us there. You will bring us home to be with you forever. Lord, whether that comes through our death or your return, Lord God, you are faithful. Lord Jesus, you will come at the appointed time and we pray that you would come soon because Lord Jesus, we long to be with you for all eternity. For we pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. As we continue to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, and I, and I hope and pray that you have already been doing that, remember the Lord Jesus Christ. This is given as, as a tangible benefit, a, a tangible means of grace. The, the, one of the ways that God's grace comes to you is through this bread and this cup. This is a reminder that, that points back to all that Christ has accomplished for you. And this is the promise that he will return for you. Brothers and sisters, 
you and I are the bride of Christ, and one day he's going to take us home. Again, whether this comes through, through the end of our life in this earth and, and, and our physical death, or whether we are, are transformed in a moment to be with Jesus forever, he will take us home. We can trust that he is faithful. We, we praise God for his faithfulness that we see to the Apostle Paul to bring him safely to Malta and then on to Rome as a picture of his promise to us to bring us safely home to be with him forever. And this is evidence of that. This is a, a picture of God's promise to you in Christ Jesus. If you are here as someone who is trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, then you are invited to come and to eat and drink and to celebrate what Christ has done for you. As we, we in, the, in this moment, look away from yourself, look, look away from, from your weaknesses, look away from your failings. Yes, repent of those things but immediately turn your head to Christ and celebrate the great salvation that he has accomplished for you. And as you think about eternal life and the fact that, that he has promised that we would, would eat and drink with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, this is, I hope you rejoice. I hope this gives you goosebumps. I hope you get overjoyed in your heart. Say, come Lord Jesus, I want you to come now. I want to be with you forever. And this is a reminder that one day you will be with him forever. Let's pray for the bread. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the wonder and the glory of the incarnation. That the eternal son of God would take on human flesh and dwell in the midst of a sinful creation for the purposes of saving your people, your elect, your bride, snatching us out of the fire. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you perfectly accomplished our salvation, something that we could never accomplish. As Lord Jesus, you lived a perfectly righteous life as, as you obeyed all of, of your own law perfectly and yet died condemned as a sinner by human beings. As your heavenly Father poured out his holy and just wrath on you in our place. Lord Jesus, you drank down to the dregs the cup of wrath that we deserve. And Lord Jesus, even as you gave up your life, you had the power and authority to take it up again. And so on the third day, you rose from the grave. Bodily, you rose from the grave. You're not a, a phantom. And you proved through many evidences that you were truly bodily resurrected. And Lord Jesus, you rose bodily up to the right hand of the Father. And Lord Jesus, one day, may it be soon, Lord Jesus, you will return to take us home to be with you forever. And so, Lord, may you help us as we, as we think about these things, as we reflect on the gospel, not just for us as individuals, but for us as a body and, and as part of the, the larger body of Christ. We pray that, that you would, would help us to remember these things. May this truly be a means of grace. Minister to us through this ordinance for your glory, for our sanctification, for the building of your church. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.